I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is someone who is bringing a rigorous and effective management style that the London market might not previously have been accustomed to. Kate Markham brings extensive business experience to the role of running Hiscox London Market. Some of this comes from entirely outside our industry, as well as the retail insurance space. Her work in restoring top performance to this Lloyd's Blue Chip and keeping it there has entailed a lot of new management thinking and not inconsiderable cultural change to embed a performance mindset that is bottom-up rather than top-down. It's refreshing, and this podcast dives right into the issues facing Hiscox and the wider London market on immediate concerns about reinsurance renewals and how they will affect coverage such as Property Cat and classes such as Specialty and Cyber. We also talk about the bigger picture, addressing digital transformation, algorithmic underwriting, and the diverse talent requirements of the market of the future. Kate is personable, eloquent, and concise, as well as being direct. And this is a really enjoyable exchange with someone who is right on top of their brief. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting, helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models, designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market, and developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Kate, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Well, I mean, I'm sure you're basking in the glow of really good results. And Hiscox London Market's results have been really strong for the last 18 months. Would it be fair to say now that that hard remediation work you did in the last few years, is that over now? I think that's fair. I think we want to stop using that word remediation. So the hard graft is done. We're really thrilled with where the team have got to. You know, they've made the tough decisions. They've had the tough conversations. The brokers have been really supportive. And I think what we're left with now is just that consistent process of taking out the bottom and replacing the better, but no more major course correction. So it's a bit like a permanent culture change because I suppose it's never actually over. And if you ever declare it to be over, then of course it'll come back. Exactly. And you can never say that your job is done. You can never say that you've got a perfect portfolio. And we're never going to say that within Hiscox. But in terms of 311, I think you've heard about that strategy. That lives on, but it's going to live on in a different way. So it now is what we do. It's embedded in the business. I think the logic of tackling the loss ratio, thinking about expenses, thinking about commission as three separate levers that you can pull. Is so just to clarify, 311 is three points off the loss ratio every year. Try to get one off your own expenses and one point off the commissions off your acquisition costs. Exactly. So that's where we started. And where we were a few years ago was taking five points off the combined was something that we needed to do and something that we definitely wanted to do. And it was achievable. And that's played through and the book's in a different place now. But the thinking around that, I would say, is embedded in the business. So it's very much a bottom-up process. And I think that was the power that sat behind it. It wasn't something that I drove from the top and said, that, you know, this is the way it's going to be. It was led by the underwriters. It was led by them and their knowledge of the books of business that they had at the time. 
and the levers that they felt they could and should pull to make the portfolio stronger. How long can you keep that up? Because obviously you can't do it every year and go down to zero. So at some point, you know, there must be a natural point at which you say, what's a reasonable sort of attritional loss ratio? What's a reasonable level of expenses or an ideal level of expenses? And what's an ideal level of acquisition cost? You're right. You can't keep going forever. You can't keep taking five points off year after year after year. But I think the thinking can go on forever. So if you're looking across a portfolio of business, is there something I can do here that's going to improve my loss ratio? So it might not be three points anymore, but what's going to make my attritional loss performance stronger in the next 12 to 18 months? What can I do to manage my cap better? What can I do to continue to focus on expenses and to think about commissions? So that's really how 311 will morph in the next 12 to 24 months. It's that bottom-up way of thinking that's embedded in the business, but less about a specific target and less about us tracking and controlling it from the centre. We've never controlled it from the centre, but we've tracked progress against it from a management point of view. And I think that will become less of an area of focus for us now. You had a stated aim of becoming the most consistently profitable of the largest five Lloyds businesses. I think that's right. Please correct me if that's at all wrong. How do you feel you've, you've progressed on that aim? We're really pleased with the progress that we've made. So I think we've cracked that on a one-year basis, maybe a couple of times in the last few years. But what we haven't done is we haven't delivered that over a multi-year basis. And that's what we really mean by that goal, is not just to be a one-hit wonder, but to be consistently seen as a really profitable syndicate in Lloyds and one of the bigger syndicates in Lloyds. So achieving that on a multi-year basis is what drives us. We haven't nailed that yet, and therefore the goal is still relevant, it's still motivating, it's still stretching, and it's very much driving what we're doing as a business. And when we think about business planning for next year, that's in our minds. So is that a sort of five-year, 10-year type thing? Yeah, absolutely. But again, it almost goes back to where we started. I don't know that we'll ever put a ribbon on it and say, well, we've achieved that, let's relax now and stop thinking about trying to be the most profitable and trying to make sure that we are influential and meaningful in the marketplace, I don't think we'll ever say the goal is done. You mentioned this about trimming appetite in property catastrophe or reducing line sizes in general to trim volatility. The market definitely at the moment is in a place where it's really moving itself away as fast as it can from property catastrophe exposure. And as I said before, you know, you have reduced your own appetite. What kind of improvement in terms would it take to bring more of an appetite back in that department. Obviously, terms are improving and probably going to improve even more. I don't think we have reduced our appetite. So a lot has been said about the work we've done on our binder books. So by that, I mean the commercial lines and household portfolio that we write. And we've taken a lot of action on those two books of business over the last few years. But in terms of the aggregate cap bet for us as a business, it hasn't reduced because what we've done is as we've shrunk on the binder side, we've redeployed that cat aggregate into our flood offer where we've grown significantly in the last five years and also into what we call major property, but the DNF portfolio, so the open market major risks. And I think overall, net net, our cat bet's fairly flat. You know, the reason we've done that is to make sure as the market is tricky, that we have control and we have control back in London and we've got incredible control through the Flood Plus product because the way that platform works, we retain underwriting control in London. And obviously on the DNF book as well, we have the same level of control. We underwrite the risks individually, we pick where we play. And so that has done us well over the last few years as the market's been tough. 
But to your point about terms, they are improving. You know, rates are going up. At the moment, in my view, would be rate improvements, rate increases that we're seeing currently being offset by reinsurance increases. So the insurance costs are going up and also inflation. And I think we just need to watch that carefully for the next 12 or so months and see which wins out. But we've got to make sure we're getting enough rate, given that the risk that we're carrying is changing. Absolutely. Well, this is a good time to ask you about. I've just come back from Monte Carlo. It's a hardening or hard reinsurance market. How's that affecting your planning? We're budgeting for an increase. We're expecting discussions around, I think, three areas to be challenging. And that would be the terror markets, political violence market, the cat market, one we've just been talking about, and also cyber. We want to put our best foot forward there. I think all the work we've done on the portfolio, we need to make sure that we go into those discussions and tell our story, talk about the actions that we've taken, talk about the way of managing inflation. But we're not expecting it to be a water in the park. We're definitely expecting it to be tougher discussions than they have been in the past. I suppose with that, the other thing going into the renewal is there's material uncertainty about the reserving on some of the losses that have been incurred. Is that the other big factor? I mean, Ukraine is still a live event, isn't it? Yeah. It's not something you can draw a line in the sand and say, right, it's over. Let's assess our losses. Let's make sure we've got exactly the right reserves in place. I don't think you can do that with a live event. We track it incredibly carefully and we use the very best information that we can. What I would say I've heard if you're just talking about Ukraine, it's obviously getting information out of there, the ability to get loss adjusters in to go and understand what the losses might be. The flow of data has been very challenging. Yeah. So we're using everything we can. We're using every form of information we can get our hands on to make sure we're reserving well, reserving early, reserving cautiously. But it's not over and it's not a very black and white type event. It's a lot of grey. No, especially it's not something you can start mitigating any of those losses. You can have satellites giving you incredibly detailed images of things, but if you literally can't go there, you can't stop the building from leaking or collapsing or whatever. Yeah, no, you're right. Over time, our exposure is reducing, which is the portfolio yeah. of news. So that's playing out as we would expect it to. Yeah. And the good news is that some of the ships that have been stranded there are beginning to move, and that's a really positive development. I think both from a grain perspective in terms of beginning to get some of that food flowing around the world where it needs to go to that's huge just from the consumer and a customer perspective and a human perspective i think just in terms of opening up a corridor and beginning to get some things out in a safe way which so far seems to be working that can only be good news as well you mentioned this earlier i think once we dealt with specialty and we dealt with property cat at monte carlo the next topic of conversation was definitely cyber it seemed to be at a point where growth might become curtailed in cyber through a lack of reinsurance capacity. Do you think we're any closer to unlocking some of that capacity that's going to be needed if we're going to continue growing this class? We have to address systemic risk on cyber. If we can do that as a marketplace, then I think the cyber marketplace will continue to prosper, to continue to grow. There is, without doubt, client demand. It's needed as a product. And I think the need for the product will only continue to grow over time. But the systemic risk is scary and it has to be addressed. What's been interesting in the last couple of months, we've seen three different solutions from others in the marketplace. We're looking at those very carefully, as you would imagine, and I'm really interested to see how brokers and clients respond to those. And we're working through how we want to respond as well. We'll share more on that in due course. But I think if one of those solutions work, if more than one of those solutions work, and it typically isn't always one answer to a problem, 
and we together as a market we can address the systemic risk and I think cyber will continue to do well and I think capital will continue to support it. Well, something I've been talking to everyone about in the last couple of years because it's really come up, you know, we love our three-letter abbreviations in the London market, but ESG has been probably the, the most prominent one of the last couple of years. I just wonder what your view is of ESG and what's your strategy around it. Some people view it more as a sort of compliance thing and other people see it as a massive business opportunity and some a bit of both. I'm probably in a bit of both camp. I think there are challenges associated with ESG, but I think there's a world of opportunity. You know, as a business and as a marketplace, I think this is getting increasing attention, which is absolutely right. As a market, we need to step up and respond. My view is it's what the London market should be famous for is dealing with these emerging risks and finding a way to help clients tackle them. So within Hiscox, we're putting more and more time and effort on it. If I just talk climate for a minute, rather than the broader ESG, there will obviously be business in the future that we ensure today that we won't be able to ensure or will stop being available. You know, So that business is going to dry up. That, without doubt, brings challenges because revenue streams and profit streams that we have today are not going to be available in the future. But putting that to one side, the opportunities are huge. Think new technology, think new assets, new construction that's going to go on. The shape of those deals, the tenure of those construction projects, they're going to require very, very different thinking. You know, we're talking about 25-year construction projects in some cases, um, billions and billions of dollars being pumped into that. I look at that and think the London market will find a solution to that, but it will require fresh thinking. It's going to require innovative thinking, and it's going to require some courage as well to find a way to do that. But I think that brings a world of opportunity. That, I would say, is mainly on the property side. But if you just think about the casualty side, there are going to be new and emerging liability risks emerging as companies try to transition. And I don't think we know today exactly what those are going to be, but unmet needs there that clients, I think, will look for support on. And if you think about professional services, we might have oil and gas consultants today. I'm sure there's going to be swathes of green consultants and all sorts of other things, you know, professional services capabilities and offerings that spring up around the world to help organizations make this transition. And that brings, again, new forms of insurance, new needs that we'd like to respond to. You see the whole new liabilities of greenwashing and other things appearing yeah. and presumably, obviously, it's always going to be a DNO risk because everything seems to up in DNO as well, doesn't it? On the standard side, not only is it's completely vertical for the whole of the insurance industry and the whole value chain of the insurance industry, but of course, it's sort of horizontal as well. That It affects everybody and everything. So it affects all your clients. It affects what you do. It affects people who invest, who buy Hiscox stock or lend you money. And then obviously, it affects who you buy reinsurance from as well, or who you sell a cap on to. So do you think an insurance framework around ESG to clearly define some of these things and make that an efficient process? Because it, it might be a bit odd if everyone ends up, say, Hiscox has a 50-question proposal form, and then BZ has another 50 questions. And of course, Marsh has got their own version of it, and Aon's got another one. It sounds like a recipe for a potential mess of data and expense. Do you think we're going to get our own kind of standards, or do you think they'd like to be imposed upon us one way or another? I think standards will emerge, definitely. They have to, for all the reasons that you've just touched on. If we're going to be efficient, and if we're going to provide a common understanding, a common foundation for customers, we're going to have to have common standards. I think it's going to be a bit bumpy, though, until we get there. So everything's voluntary at the moment. There's so many different options. We're evaluating lots and lots of different options. We're backing one horse at the moment. Whether that turns out to be the right horse to back in the future, who knows? 
But I think everybody's making their own decisions on the basis of best information that's available today. I absolutely think standards will emerge, though. You know, and I know a lot of people in the industry are driving that and trying to promote standards. And that's something that we will always back. Let's watch this space and hope that the industry can do something to help itself before perhaps a regulator wakes up and then imposes something on us that we probably didn't want. You mentioned this before about efficiency. And obviously, given your background on the consumer side of the business, digital insurance and, you know, as part of your long-term strategy to keep cutting the expense ratio and become more efficient, we're talking a lot about digital first now with the latest iteration of the blueprint at Lloyd's. How far off are you? I'm sure you'd say you want to be a leader in that and want to be one of the first digital first London market insurers. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I assume you'd say that. So how far off are you? It varies by line of business. So yes, we definitely want to be a leader in that space. I think it's going to take time. I don't know if all of the organization and all lines of business are ever going to be 100% digital first, but we can come back to that. But if I take Flood and our Flood Plus product as an example, I'd say that's digital first. So we can quote bind risks without anybody touching it. It's available 24-7. It's available nearly real time. You're talking about a few seconds from wherever that client is sitting. We can do that from London. And that to me is a digital first business. It's supported by people. Don't get me wrong. We've got incredible tech teams that sit behind that. We've got incredible underwriting pricing teams that help make that work. But in terms of the day-to-day, can we underwrite a risk, select a risk, price a risk, return a risk, bind a risk? Can we do all of that? Yes, we can. How far do you think you could go with all of these? I mean, is it the question of getting that submission in in a digital format? So again, some of that is presumably beyond your control, isn't it? It's down to the broker and the original client to make sure that you've got something that's purely digital before you start. Yes, but I think the more important thing is this type of risk that you're underwriting. So the flood risks that we're underwriting are small, homogeneous, and they're also 100% backed by us. Yeah, That's the best place to start is when you can do something 100%. And we're rolling that capability out. So we've rolled it out across our household book, our commercial book. We have a malicious attack product. We can also do digitally oil and gas, marine employers liability. So the list is growing. And it's growing as rapidly as we can build them out because the demand is definitely there. But we definitely are starting with the small homogeneous risks and things that will take 100%. At the other end of the spectrum, so if I talk to you about XSGL, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to do that on a 100% basis. And therefore, we're approaching that type of risk in a different way. And that's less about having a fully automated algorithm that will underwrite a risk, but more around... How do we digitize the process and how do we assist the underwriter by using data and digital to pull in third-party information to help our understanding of the risk, to price the risk in a seamless way, and then present that information to the underwriter in the dashboard so they can then underwrite the risk. So what we're doing at the moment is we're taking about 10 individual manual steps and we're fully automating that and then handing it to the underwriter so that they can look at it. And that, I think, is probably going to be the model for the bigger market complex risks for a period of time. So in terms of what you're describing with Flood Plus, would you describe that as algorithmic in any way? Yeah. And effectively, you can do the tweaking. You can tweak it, but it will go and do that underwriting without you having to do anything. Yes. So at the core of Flood Plus is a highly sophisticated pricing algorithm and underwriting algorithm. That's something that we've been developing for over 10 years. 
we developed it with Flood. We've had it on other products in the past as well, but I'd say Flood is the model that we're really scaling now. And what it does is it sucks up all sorts of different third-party data sources. You know, to give you an example, it absorbs incredibly detailed geographic information on the US geography. So we have elevation levels within one foot of accuracy. And then it combines that with flood dynamic models. And then it combines it with all sorts of other data that we pull in to price and select the risk. So it's fully algorithmic in its nature. But you think that some of those other classes, you know, just to go back to that, you talk about that example of the excess general liability placement. Obviously, we've got businesses in the Lloyd's market that might be able to offer a, an automatic follow line to someone else's yeah. lead terms on that. Are you interested in that at all on, on following? Would you rather be the leader that is then followed by the automatic algorithm, whether you have the, this sort of bionic underwriter that you're talking about, this digitally enhanced underwriter, setting those terms, and then probably in the market of the future, that placement being completed very, very quickly digitally as a follow? Yeah, so everything we're doing at the moment is about lead. So the decisions that we've made is we want to create the ability to select a risk, underwrite a risk, price a risk, and return the risk via APIs in a digital way. And to do that as a leader, I think that's entirely complementary to the fast follow capabilities that exist in the marketplace. We need both. We need leaders and followers. Yep. But at the moment, you're right. In terms of our strategy, everything we're doing is about creating that algorithmic and that pricing knowledge in terms of lead. But if you talk to everyone 10 years ago with digital, they'd be very worried about, they would say, well, I've got my data. I don't want to share it with the broker. Or the broker would say, it's my data. And the client might say, well, it's my data. Do you think we've now reached a slightly different level of maturity around the data to understand that perhaps it's worth a lot more if you share it with other people and obviously bring in lots of third party to keep validating and keep honing and refining that data and make it more meaningful? Because, of course, if you had 100% market share, then your data would be absolutely it. But that's never going to be the case, is it? It's definitely worth a lot more when it's good data, when it's clean data, when you know you can trust that data. And I think that's where we are as a marketplace. So. Yes, I think we are maturing as an industry. I think the Data Council is doing incredible work in terms of tackling those discussions head on. And the fundamental shift in terms of progress is that the brokers are at the table. And that was something that Sheila Cameron in particular drove very directly when she set up the Data Council to say, we cannot do this without the brokers. And therefore, let's make sure that the brokers are really well represented because it has to start with the clients, it has to start with the brokers. But in a world where there's consistent data, there's clean data, there's trusted data. We're totally up for sharing it. And I think that's where the efficiencies will come from. And then sort of allow ourselves to have some blue sky thinking. What do you think the prize is in this? And, and do you think the current batch of reforms are going to bring a fully digital marketplace to most of the London market? Or is it just a, a stepping stone before we get to some sort of digital utopia? I don't know if we're ever going to be a fully digital marketplace. And I can maybe come back to that in a minute. But in terms of the difference that clean data and good data and shared data can have, I do think that will deliver huge benefits in time. I think these things always take longer than we anticipate. You know, if you look at Blueprint 2, I think the current plan is for that to go live in the second half of 2024. And then you're starting with a certain proportion of the business, certain number of classes of business. You'll then start, I'm assuming, with new business. You then need to think about your renewal book. So it always takes time to ramp up. And therefore, I think the radical benefits will come through over time, but probably not in the first 12 months. Is it a step in the right direction? And is it going to make the market much more efficient in terms of processing? I absolutely believe it will. 
So the big prize is more in the service, obviously speed to market, speed to pay claims as well. So it's, you know, be able to quote and bind quickly and then also move quickly and also pay quickly. Yeah. I mean, the quote and bind, as I say, that's a bit I think we'll sit with underwriters. Once the risk is bound, then I think it will be really quick. And I think that's a bit that Lawrence is building out, the digital processing of that risk. And as you say, if we've got clarity over the cover and clarity over the risk, then there are going to be opportunities for quicker claims payments as well if it's a non-complex claim. So you said earlier that you don't think we will get to a fully digital marketplace. Why do you say that? <laughs> well, what is fully digital? If you're running and designing an incredibly complex pricing algorithm, that takes people. Yes, there's machine learning. Yes, there's AI. And yes, we're using all of that. But it's still managed and driven by people. The risk, understanding the client, understanding what they're doing, you know, producing the business, talking to the brokers, I don't see that going digital in the short term at all. I just think the relationships and the understanding and the complexity of what we're dealing with need a human discussion. And maybe to bring that alive, I was in Lloyd's recently and I was sitting with our political violence team and a risk was brought in by a broker and it was for solar farm construction in Scandinavia. And there was a single access road and they were worried about potential protests. And obviously, if the protests had happened, it could have blocked the road and then the construction would have been delayed. And, and I remember sitting and listening to that discussion between the broker and the underwriter and the level of detail they were going into around the geography and the options and the current feeling from a sort of community and civil perspective in that particular country and how people were feeling about solar farms and construction. It was in an area of outstanding natural beauty. And I sit there and I try and imagine writing a set of questions that I could lock down into a system and say, well, just answer these 10 questions and I'll underwrite your risk. I can't see that happening in the short term for a risk of that nature. And if you go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago with ESG and climate transition risks and all these new perils that are going to emerge, I can't see that being done without people in the short term. Yeah. You wouldn't expect to see uh, Scandinavia on very high on anyone's kind of political risk or political violence uh, schedule. You'd think it'd be right in the lowest possible sort of greenest category, wouldn't it be? But and I suppose also an algorithm never agreed an ex gratia payment either. Our clients are human, so we probably need, we need the human focus to actually solve their problems. And if our clients were all algorithms, I suppose that would make more sense, wouldn't it? So I, I really take your point there. Let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about diversity and inclusion as well, probably the last question. Well, I want to ask specifically what you're doing to attract more diverse talent into the marketplace and whether you can see that you can turn that kind of strategy into a competitive advantage over some of your peers. I think step number one is you've got to make sure you've done your homework and you've got the right foundations in place. And we've done a lot in the last few years in terms of making sure we've got the top-down buy-in, so board-level oversight holding business units to account, setting targets, tracking progress, making sure we've got the right policies in place, all of that, all of that good stuff has to happen. And that's very much in place. In terms of attracting new talent in, we're taking this head on. So we're working with a number of organisations globally, but I'm going to talk London, within London, who specifically focus on reaching people that wouldn't consider insurance as a career. So people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, and helping for them to understand what we do, where we are, the sorts of roles that we offer, and demystifying that. Because people either have never heard of insurance, or when you say insurance, they think car and home insurance, and they have never heard of what we do in in the London market. 
So we're doing a lot with those organisations in terms of helping that education process. So how can we bring people in, let them come for a day, let's walk them around, let's chat to them, let's talk to them about what we do, let's explain the types of roles, let's help them with some interview practice. Let's offer some work experience placements so people can come in and try it for a few days, a few weeks. Let's make sure we've got some really great internship programs so that people can come in, they can spend six or eight weeks with us over the summer and we move them. We have a really well-planned approach where they get to taste different parts of the business. And then that then ultimately feeds through into apprenticeships and then you know we've got our grad program as well. Through all of that, I would say we're just after talent we're after people with different perspectives different skills most of all we're just trying to get more people to know what we do so that piques their interest and they might consider a career in in the world that we're in so it's grassroots work we can't suddenly quickly impact a million people but if we can impact somewhere between 10 and 100 it's hiscox every year then over time i think that momentum will build so there's a lot going on in terms of that sort of grassroots, attracting people in, school leavers, just demystifying it. I think as an industry as well, there's quite a lot going on. So, you know, I'm part of the London Market Group board. There's lots that we're trying to do collectively as an industry. And obviously, I'm very supportive of that. In terms of Hiscox, I would say, you know, we've always had a talent strategy. We're lucky in that we're seen and always have been seen as a great place in terms of attracting new talent and developing talent. It can make us a target, which is disappointing, but you know we're going to continue to do that. But one of the things that's sort of come out in the last couple of years, we've had 48 boomerangs, we call them, who have gone and come back. And actually, that's really exciting for us because when you have those conversations about why are you here? Why have you come back? You knew Hiscox, you decided to leave, you've come back. Why are you back? There are always myriad of reasons but there's always one reason that's common to every single answer we hear and that's because at Hiscox they get to work with great people and I think that's the key thing that to me drives talent strategy if we can continue to find great people if we can continue to demystify what we do and attract people with different backgrounds and perspectives in then that I think will continue to feed the type of people that we have the type of people we attract the type of people we develop and the type of people we retain and that ultimately I hope will be a competitive advantage. It just reminded me of one of those cartoons that go around social media. It's, it's the one of the two executives talking to each other and saying, what if we spend lots of money training all our staff and developing them, and then they leave? And then the other one says, well, what if we don't train them and don't develop them, and then they stay? You know, it's just one of those. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you can't win on that one. So it's just better to, better to be in the first camp, I think. Just you know, keep developing people because they will come back and they do remember. Most people I interview at this C level, when do you think we're going to see more Kates than john's and richards it's coming it is sort of despair slightly when i scroll down my last 10 episodes i don't see enough diverse faces shall i say i genuinely believe it's coming so the people are there we need to continue to feed the hopper from the bottom as i've just been talking about but the talent's there i'm continually surprised in a really positive way about the amazing people that exist in this market but i think what we've got to make sure is that we give them the right exposure we give them the right opportunities and they will come through. I would say there's a strong pipeline coming through. I can talk certainly within Hiscox where we've got a lot of people that are in fantastic roles that are building great experience. And if you give us another between one and five years, I think we're going to have some great talent coming through. And that's not just the gender card, that's broader talent with different backgrounds and different skills. But you can't do it overnight. 
And I don't believe in just going trying to nick it from somewhere else. I think it should be homegrown and it takes time, but it's worth waiting for. Kate, I've come to the end of all my questions. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Good luck with this interesting and very good market to be trading in, but good luck also, but probably quite difficult for some of those reinsurance renewals that are going to be coming up. So I wish you all the best with those. And I hope you'll come on the show very soon and give us an update. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.